Oh, it's good to be home for the holidays. Could you start recording, please? Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I'm here with... Holly Headley. I was telling Holly that I heard somebody say this week that if I hear anybody singing, oh, it's good to be home for the holidays, I'm going to slap them. And you just did it. And just, I can't just... get it out of my mind. Yeah. I just do that. I, I listen to Christmas music like Josh. Josh, yep. Day after Thanksgiving mm -hmm. till the 6th of January. He said last night, I would listen to it from July till December if Holly let me. Well, if you get him some of those new Apple earphones for oh, Christmas, he has all of they're only almost $600. Mm -hmm. He has all the earphones he needs. All the ways he could block me out, he has. <laughs> so this is the third Sunday in Advent. Next Sunday is, of course, the 20th. And um, I'll just direct you to St. Paul's website, whether you are in Houston or not. <clears throat> there is anticipated some in-person gathering events for Christmas Eve. And you can find out about those on the St. Paul's website. Next Sunday will be our last Sunday to teach this year. Because traditionally we've taken the, the week after Christmas off. And um, I haven't decided. I think decided. we should do a year in review. But we don't have enough time for all the things that have happened in 2020 and 2020. Well, I, you know, I, I do think that maybe we could interrupt this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and do something more Christmassy or reviewy or something yeah. like that. Have a little fun. Have fun. <laughs> well, I have fun every Sunday doing this. <laughs> you know, you can get the previews and summaries of this class uh, online. You can go to the Ordinary Life website and subscribe. Or send me an email and I'll make sure that you get them and you can subscribe to our podcast. Yes, our podcast is called In Between and it comes out on the website under the podcast and live stream heading. You can also download it at Apple iTunes. And I have just kept forgetting to put it on Spotify. It's really easy to do. I just haven't remembered. But it comes out usually on Thursday mornings. And you can just get a glimpse of where our minds are headed for the Sunday talks. And I usually remember to send my dad the text for today so he can read along and I forgot. Okay. <laughs> um, if you want to give money, there's an offering plate. Yeah. You just re you've seen this guy, Zach King, on Instagram who does optical illusions where he looks like he's reaching through computer screens. and He's amazing. He's great. You could just do that. Yeah. Or you can go online and click on a donate button and it'll take you to uh, St. Paul's website where in the memo you write Ordinary Life if you'd like to make a contribution. We're at that point in the year where uh, this week we're going to get to give away all of your contributions to nonprofits who are serving the poor and underserved and hopes to empower that community. So you thank you. announce that next Sunday, what, yeah. you, what, what the committee's done. Yeah, I think we're meeting tomorrow. I'm waiting for two people to get back to me. You know, um, I always try to thank the people who are behind the scenes here. And um, John Watson, who is our floor manager, <laughs> um, takes pictures and sends them to me. So if you were here, this is what you would see, except that's last week. We changed clothes this week. We did. And that's Olivia that you're seeing. William is not in the shot, but maybe next Sunday we'll do that. <laughs> It's, it's a complicated process to get this up and on the air. Yeah. But I, I sure do love these two kids. Yeah. Y'all aren't really kids, but I do love them. They'll help us out. So uh, no matter who you are or where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Uh, everybody's a pajama person these days, or if you're in another time zone, maybe a wine and cheese person, wherever. I started getting Christmas cards uh, from people, and um, people write in the notation on the card or the Christmas letter, which I love to read. I've got a great one from um, Crystal Irvin, Crystal and Tom. Oh, hi, guys. And uh, they, um, Crystal had a, the books that she's read mm. in the coronavirus, so... I'm glad you're here. Thank you for hanging in during this time. And 
Um, nobody really knows what the outcome of the vaccine is going to mean for us in terms of things beginning to open up again. I'm confident we won't be doing it this way next year. I mean, this time next year, we're slowly going to have some sort of reopening process. And I'll leave it to the sociologist and to the doctors to predict what we'll ever get back to doing as we used to. Some things we may never pick up again, uh, and that could be great. But I'm, I'm grateful for all sorts of reasons that you are here, that you've hung in, and I, like you, will be glad when we can gather as we once did. I don't want to say anything or do anything that's off-putting to you in any way that should go without saying. Further, I would like it that you find this time so valuable that you would pass on these recordings to your friends or maybe get someone to watch with you or in tandem with you and then maybe as part of your spiritual practice during the week to talk about the content of what you have heard me and Holly talk about in, in these times together. Um, I want our lives to flourish as a result of doing these times. And this gets to be a bit dicey when we start coming clean with each other about how difficult doing spiritual work is. Every time somebody asks me about having a spiritual practice and I begin to say what it could look like, I can see them go. That sounds like a lot of work. That, yeah, that's going to take time. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So um, I don't want to do anything that's off-putting. <clears throat> I say that, and then I say, now I'm going to read to you a passage from the Bible, which, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is for some people about as off-putting as you can which get. Which we resisted a bit. Yeah. We kind of were like, oh, here we are. I've but, heard that. I yeah. don't need to hear it. Yeah. It reminds people of... Really wounds, uh, a lot of wounds they carry from their religious background. Uh, and I think that because of the insights from evolutionary cosmology, people are getting more and more turned off by religion in general and finding science to be the gateway to a new religious expression. They're both frameworks. Yeah. They're both frameworks through which we can experience reality. Neither should be taken as the entire whole, but. But we have been going through the morality teachings uh, found in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you uh, have been living under a rock for the last six months, I'd love to have that rock. <laughs> Is so, it comfortable there? Yeah, so I Is there a bed? I don't know what's going on too. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we have been uh, trying to navigate this space between the no longer and not yet, during this time of pandemic and during this time of racial reckoning. That's the framework in which Holly and I are, are writing these talks every week to try to take those things into consideration. And um, maybe next Sunday I'll do George Carlin's bit on the Ten Commandments because the Sermon on the Mount is kind of a redo of the morality teachings found in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, I'm going to read you a passage from the Bible, and maybe because it has to do with sex and adultery, it will keep your attention. Those are hot, yeah. hot topics. So. But, but I'll give you a warning. Uh, the content is about much more than sex and adultery. I want to read you the words uh, found in the Sermon on the Mount attributed to Jesus, although these <laughs> words come from the early... Christian community and not from Jesus himself. But you know the next commandment pretty well too. This is Eugene Peterson's translation. Don't go to bed with another spouse, but don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. And you have to chop off your right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly. 
better a bloody stump than your entire being discarded for good in the dump. You know, I told Holly this week, when you read stuff like this, you wonder how Jesus got any followers at all. Yeah. People hear this and say, oh, no, that's not for me. Well, that you know, title of this section is Adultery and Divorce, right? <laughs> He's so. not doing these in the order in which they are in the, in the Hebrew scripture. The one on adultery is the seventh commandment in the Hebrew. This is the second one that Jesus picks up to do. Um, he makes it number two, or they make it number two. I, it, again, I want to say from the standpoint of biblical scholarship, Jesus uh, did not say these words. This is coming from the early community. Um, but it's about so much more than it appears to be. And I've taken this first line, we've taken this first line in this, text as a title for today's talk. Let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. Mm -hmm. There. I think a, a lot of people have been harmed by taking literally these teachings, right? Thou shalt not divorce excludes people from, has, has in certain churches excluded people from that community. So we're not taking this literally, but we are taking it seriously. And if we did take it literally, most of us would be running around one-eyed and one-handed. Um, I'm not suggesting that we've all been actual adulterers or that we've um, gone outside of our marriage. I never heard of this Greek God yeah. to you. Yeah, the one-eyed Greek God, a cyclops. Um, but I do want to say I bet we've all had a thought, and maybe I'm projecting here, so I'll own that. Something like, ooh, that guy's really handsome. Don't get me started on how handsome I find Common, the rapper. I mean, he's beautiful. <laughs> but I married someone pretty close, so I think Common can take a back seat. But seriously, remaining pure in thought, this is really hard. How many times a day do we have a negative thought? Or as Bill remarked on our podcast this week, cheerfully went to kill your spouse, <laughs> right? And we talked a lot about last week how thoughts become things. There's a theory called the law of attraction, which is pretty ironic given the topic we're on this week. But it basically says that like attracts like. In other words, the thought, like thoughts attract other thoughts like them. If we have negative thoughts most of the time, we're going to attract more negative thoughts to ourselves. We have something like a little magnet in our brains that draws us toward what is on our minds, conscious or unconscious. It's probably pretty normal to find other people attractive. I think humans are beautiful creatures. The challenge is, like with everything, what do we do when we have an impulse? An impulse of anger, an impulse of judgment, an impulse of attraction. On a physical level, the law of attraction means that we are separate from the things we desire and that we must bring ourselves closer to them. On a metaphysical level, it says, nope, we were never actually separate. We don't attract anything toward us. All things are already connected. What we do is make the space for it to draw near based on where we direct our hearts and minds. So I think the question here is, where are you directing your energy that may eventually constitute putting out an eye? Even if you're mostly positive, difficult things will happen. So I'm not trying to suggest that you can kind of think or wish away the hard. Being too positive, in my opinion, can be a form of denial. If you are too negative, though, you miss all of the beauty of being alive. So of course, like everything, the balance is in between being in reality with what is, and developing the tools to face challenges as they arise. There's a saying that's attributed to Gandhi that I believe applies here. Your beliefs become your thoughts, your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your values, your values become your destiny. I wonder why Jesus used or allegedly used such extreme images such as put, taking out an eye or cutting off a hand to get us into what Buddhism would call right mind or right livelihood. 
I wonder if it mustn't be like dreams, how dreams use really provocative images when they want to get our attention. And finally, when we're not paying attention, we get something like dismemberment. I have had dismemberment dreams before, and they're pretty gruesome. I had a dream once in which a body was quartered. And uh, it, anyways, we won't go there, but, but it got me to pay attention. What is this dream about? Have you read Edinger's Ego and Archetype? Uh, no, I haven't. Shall I? Yeah, well, you love him. I you do. like the book that he wrote about yeah. Jesus yeah. as an archetype. Yeah. And he talks about dismemberment dreams in I that book. Well, I will read it. Uh, okay. Thanks. Yeah. Recommendation. Um, anyhow, so these images that are used are designed to get our attention. What is it that we need to pay attention to? I also think there are times in our lives when we're 22, let's say, versus 44 or 83 when we simply don't know how to pay attention to the messages of the unconscious. So it keeps working on us. It keeps working on us. I think we can all agree that divorce and adultery are painful. They're painful experiences to go through. They're painful for families. They're painful for the individuals. And it's really important to address the root of that pain. But I don't want to focus on the rights and the wrongs of adultery and divorce. That's, this is not a lesson meant to shame anyone. Even people who stay married aren't always happy or even mostly happy. Divorce can happen inside of a marriage if you emotionally abandon yourself or your partner. This lesson is a metaphor for how we might look outside of ourselves to learn how to be ourselves. So the questions I think that are important to ask are, what do you believe about yourself? And who is the you that you are true to? There is one person in the world that you simply cannot divorce or leave, no matter how hard we try, through addiction, suicidal ideation, projection, all the defense mechanisms that, mechanisms that we use to separate from ourselves. That one person you can't leave is you. You cannot leave you. So the question is, how have you, and I am among me you, looked with lust away from yourself? And how have you, and again, I place myself among me you, abandoned your own heart? There's no one for you to become except for you. This is your most important relationship. So when uh, you and I began teaching together, I said to you that I do really much better if we're in a series. Yes. Um, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. And one of the things that sevens are known for, according to Sandra Mitri, is what she calls ego planning. They're always planning what's next and what's next. And the good thing about that is when I am, when we are doing a series, I'm able to anticipate several weeks down the road and so I'm scanning <clears throat> the horizon and what I read and the people I encounter and what I talk about for material that we can use here. Right. So it's a very advantageous thing to me. The downside of it is that it sometimes <laughs> makes you deal with stuff that you would otherwise simply not want to pick up and deal with, like sex and adultery. So I want to I say that the literal meaning of the seventh commandment in the Hebrew scripture was that a man <clears throat> was not to have sexual intercourse with the wife or the intended wife of another Israelite. Everybody else is fair game. Ah, yeah. Just don't have sex with someone's intended wife. Don't have sex with somebody, another Israelite's wife or intended wife. He might <clears throat> be interested to reflect back now on one of the most well-known stories in the Christian scripture where a woman is brought to Jesus having been found in the act of adultery. Mm -hmm. What happened to the guy? It, it, that's, I think, a question that has been needing to be answered. Well, it is, it is a reflection of the profound patriarchy of the, of the Hebrew scripture, which lasts until this If very... a young woman gets pregnant outside of marriage or as a teenager, she pays for it, not the young man. Right. Yeah. Right. So you were said to have committed adultery if you had, a man was said 
to have committed adultery if he had sex with somebody outside the Israelite tribal boundary. Um, sexual intercourse with an unmarried woman did not, uh, did not fall under this rubric. You weren't considered to have committed adultery then. Very likely, and, and you have to remember, these laws were given at the time uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures to an unruly tribe of vagabonds. Um, and, the, and the primary emphasis was not ethical at all. The primary emphasis had to do with the furthering of the tribe uh, and, and was intended that a man could not impregnate some person outside that group. They wanted the tribe to grow. Uh, it was only later that the moralistic emphasis was put in place. So, this commandment in the Hebrew tradition was given to create a kind of stability for marriage in the tribe. Um, because marriage in the Hebrew scripture is the cornerstone of sexuality. So, the stipulations having to do with sex and sexuality in the Hebrew scripture were designed to regulate and protect relationships within the extended family. They didn't apply to what went on outside of there. And it came to be that there was no sin regarded in Judaism with greater horror than adultery, and it came to be that no sin was committed more commonly. You might keep in mind also that both in the Hebrew Scripture and in the Jesus narrative, prophets in the Hebrew, and Jesus was in that prophetic tradition, referred to people as an adulterous generation, not because of their sexual behavior, but because they strayed outside the bonds and bounds of the commandments given in Jewish legal system. And if they did that, they were considered to be an adulterous generation. However, I want to say that in the psychological and spiritual work that I have done with people over the past 40 plus years, there is probably nothing except death itself, especially death by suicide or murder, that causes more pain it's referred to in the literature as attachment injury than infidelity. Men and women react differently to the uh, knowledge that their partner has had an affair, but it leaves indelible scars on people's memories and relationships. Not only is it a breach of faith, not only is it breaking a promise, but infidelity also communicates the message I no longer value you, or I no longer value our relationship. Uh, I noticed early on, this is not my notes, but if a man finds out that his wife has had an affair, his response is, how could you do that to me? If a woman finds out her husband has had an affair, her response is, how could you do that to us? Because men and women think differently about relationships. Broadly speaking, I might say, how could you do this to me? And then, and then kill him. <laughs> Actually, tearfully. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but the us, I think, also comes into play when you consider the whole family network. There's also a saying that says, if you give a man a dollar, this is an African proverb, um, he'll feed himself. If you give a woman a dollar, she'll feed the village. And, you know, we are programmed in some ways socially to take care of the house. So I don't know a psychological or spiritual teacher, although we did have an experimentation with this back in the 70s called open marriage, which didn't work. Um, I don't know a spiritual teacher or um, a psychotherapist that would not say that in committed relationships, whether you're heterosexual, whether you're gay, whether you're married, whether you're not married, we're all called to fidelity, sexual fidelity in our relationships. And one of the things that that fidelity means is an affirmation of our sexuality 
in all of its manifold complexity. We are sexual beings, and as such, we need tenderness and compassion and love and friendship. So I want to affirm two things about sex and sexuality. The first one is that sex is not a sin. I think that the uh, church in its moral stance has often communicated that to people and made sex something that's dirty. I can't tell you again how many young people I have counseled over the years who got a message growing up that sex was such an awful, immoral thing to be saved for marriage, as it's put, and then when they got married, that those feelings about sex mm-hmm. didn't automatically just go away. This is particularly a message for, for young girls. Young girls. I think so. Mm-hmm. Sex is not a sin. And the other affirmation is sex is not salvation either. Sex is like nitroglycerin. It can be used to blow up bridges or it can be used to heal hearts. So I want to give you a piece of advice. This is not from Jesus. This is from me. And my piece of advice is if you're going to have a sexual relationship, do yourself a favor and have it with the most enlightened person you can find and have an exclusive relationship with that person. Now, if you don't follow this advice, my observation is you leave yourself open to great discord and confusion. Now, as I said, this advice is from me. It's not from Jesus. I'm a pretty gentle advice giver. Jesus goes much deeper. Cut off your hand. Just cut off your hand. Just cut off your hand. So um, there, there is a formula that I mentioned to you before that is in each of these morality teachings of Jesus. And I think I got the phrase from Richard Orr in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, although it's been a long time since I've read that book. He calls these things the transformative initiatives, and they go by formula, each one of them. I think there are 14 of them. You have heard it said, and he will quote something from the Hebrew tradition, and then he says, but I say unto you, and then he takes it further with that transformative initiative. You have heard it said not to commit adultery, but I say, uh, if you looked with lust, you are already guilty. The mechanism of bondage is to look at human beings as objects. And again, I think men in our culture have a much more difficult time of this than women. We'll see what Holly has to say. Because men are taught to look at women as objects. We objectify and idealize women. And um, I think one of the toughest psychological tasks for a man is to withdraw the projections he makes onto the woman in his life and to accept her just as another human being. Mm. That's tough for guys to do because we sexualize everything. Well, and, and it, uh, you're right. I mean, everything from drinking a beer to getting new glasses is, has to do with, oh, did I see a truck, an air conditioning repair truck not too long ago? with a woman in a really tight shirt, uh, tied up right under her breasts, holding like a wrench, being like, we'll fix your AC. I was like, really? I just thought, she sells air conditioning repairs too. I mean, it just, Well, know. how much difficulty in the world comes because we objectify people? Yeah. Either positively or negatively. Yeah. Think about the trouble that we have in the very racial issues that we're dealing with right now Absolutely. where people are objectified. Mm-hmm. So what, what is the transformative initiative here in a broader way of looking? And it is remove the cause of the temptation. Now, please don't literalize this. When I was in seminary, mm-hmm. a student actually used a bandsaw to cut off his hand. Of course, he was very unbalanced. Mm-hmm. What Jesus is teaching is that we should stop playing the mind game of living in a fantasy world. His images of ripping out your eye or cutting off your hand were simply an indication of how difficult it is to discipline the mind. And anybody who has taken up 
a meditation or contemplative practice already knows this. This is hard work. Fantasy has nothing to do with the real world of human relationships. Relationships don't just happen in the head. They happen in the real world order. And what it costs to live in the real world can be like plucking out your eye or cutting off your hand. So what these metaphors mean is to take yourself and to take life seriously. One of the things it means uh, is to wake up. Being aware is one of the central teachings of any good spiritual path. So often in life we can fall into unawareness that leaves us fair game for what is unresolved and unrecognized in our own lives. We can get captured and led down paths that become our personal hell. My definition of the unconscious is what we don't know. Hmm. And what we don't know owns us if we're not careful. Yeah. It's, it's ironic to me that um, the root of adultery is adult, and yet we're talking about becoming adult, growing up, right? What does it mean to grow up? It is to own our unconscious and to own, to own the things that, that, that guide us. So it's kind of interesting. Adultery has adult in it, and yet we're saying we need to become adults. Right. <laughs> um, so in the best way possible. But I couldn't, when I read what you had written in advance of this, I could not respond to what you have said without bringing in our friend Martin Buber, who we've both read, and he was a, a Jewish philosopher and um, uh, theologian who wrote about the human relationship to pretty much everything, but especially in the way he was writing about it, to one another and to the sacred. So there's three ways that he determined relationship could be perceived. One was I-it, the other is I-you, and the third is I-thou. Everything that you were talking about, Bill, this tendency to objectify, not just women, but sex, other people, other races, falls under an I-it stance. If I don't see you as sort of an extension of me, of life. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> we just had Siri pipe in. I think you're... Sorry, that was really funny. We'll let Siri take over in a second. But any... I thought I had it on quiet. Well, she is not wanting to be quiet. Good for her. <laughs> um, what she said was she didn't, wasn't sure she understood the I-it stance. And I, I, I get it. I get her. Anyhow, I-it makes an object of people and of things in your field of vision, including God. I-it confines God to rules, to dogma, just to prayers, and kind of following a formula. Uh, God, your relationship to God, becomes about the rules that you follow, as opposed to a relationship with the sacred. It's transactional and often def uh, is based on kind of your most basic level of survival. The primary question then is, what's in this for me? I, it drove a slave economy, how we've treated the earth, how we consume. I, it happens when we look at a homeless person, for example, in disgust and say, how could he get himself in that situation? Heck, I, it happens when we look at our spouse or our partner or someone we love in disgust. I, you is a second mode of relating, but that relationship tends to be sort of strictly between one and another. I, you is deeper than I, it. I am distinct from you, but neither in, in that relationship do you see the self beyond the other. So you are all I see. In this capacity, we can be transformed by that relationship, and there is love there. But if you disappear, I have nothing left because I've put all of my sort of stock in you. Um, Certainly it has, again, the capacity for love, but it can also become single-minded, myopic, or maybe even codependent. You might have more to say about IU, so jump in if you want. Nope, okay. I'm good. All right. I thou is what Martin Buber sort of deems the sort of, that's the ideal relationship. Not just between human and sort of the God form, but between humans and everything else. 
Buber writes, I, thou, can only be spoken with the whole being. Thou fills the heavens. This does not mean that nothing exists except himself, but all else lives in his light. Thou is that which contains everything, and it is also embedded in everything. It is to ask the question, instead of what's in it for me, what does life want from me? What does life want to draw forth? Okay, so I know that sounds really mystical and not so practical, but I actually think there's a really practical element to the mystical because it can apply universally. You know that beautiful saying of Meister Eckhart's, the eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. I love this enhanced photograph of the reflection in one's eyeball being the thing that is being looked at. In other words, how I see one thing is how I see everything. It could also be said like this, the eye with which I see myself is the same eye with which others see me. We lose an eye when we lose sight of ourselves. In trying to divorce the self, what about you are you rejecting? What holes are we trying to fill? What childhood wounds? I cannot say enough, back to the title of this presentation, about how hard this is. <laughs> because the inevitable truth is that we all have wounds. We all have holes that we are trying to fill. So the question is not whether we have them, but what are we doing to either try to escape them or how are we tending to them? So Holly, when I see this, <clears throat> I'm uh, gonna go off script. Mm. I, I just finished reading John Caputo's book at uh, Dr. Matt Russell's recommendation. Mm. John Caputo wrote a book called Hope Against Hope, and I'm um, preparing to do a talk at the Jung Center next year on hope. And one of my Meister Eckhart's lines in the book that Caputo writes about is something I'd like for us to do a whole class on, mm. and that is the prayer that Meister Eckhart prayed, God, I pray that thou would uh, rid me of God. I pray to mm. God that God would rid me of God. What does that mean? Out there. Yeah. It's that sort of, yeah. Well, it is that whole whole thing that you were talking about, about uh, growing up, which I, I know this is at the risk of just repetition that creates boredom, but the key <laughs> thing in doing the spiritual work is a commitment to grow up. Yeah. And while you were talking about adult and adultery, I, it reminded me, and s this happened to somebody who's really well known, mm. uh, who grew up in the Catholic tradition, and as a kid went to confession and confessed the sin of adultery. And it took the priest some time to figure out that what had happened is that this little boy had been fussed at for acting too grown up. Huh. Act your age. You're not an adult. <laughs> Pretty sure I'm so my 10-year-old. When he acted like an adult, he thought that that was committing the sin of, of adultery. Yeah. The teachings of Jesus are full of metaphors. Mm -hmm. They are full of paradoxes. They are full of contradictions. If you want, here's an example. If you want to have life, you must be willing to give it up. That's a message of hope. It's a message of growth. And a lot of people don't want to hear that message. Uh, when life tumbles in on us, and I'm speaking now from somebody who is done years and years of psychotherapy, and people come into the therapist's office having had a crisis, sometimes a relational crisis, and what they want to hear is, yes, I can restore your life to its pristine romantic idealism. Um, yes, your old values, your old preferences will still work. Uh, yes, you can have what you want without having to change anything. And all those are not true. Um, when we go through some period where we move from things that no longer work 
we have to navigate this territory that we're navigating right now. And the, the pandemic probably could not offer us a better opportunity to do this work where we won't be able to go back to some things as usual. Um, just this week, I read, you yeah. flip that, just this week, I read this line from James Baldwin that I had not seen before. Bowen says, any real change implies the breakup of the world as one has always known it. The loss of all that gives one an identity, the end of safety. I think that's in the fire next time. Huh? It's, I think that's in the fire next time. It might be in Nobody Knows My Name. So when we come to making decisions that we think will deal with our hurts and fears and desires, we have to continually ask, mm -hmm. is this going to diminish me or is this going to enlarge me? I got this from Jim Hollis. Is this going to allow me to bring enlarged being to the world or is this going to allow me to bring diminished being? And again, I don't think we can do this by ourselves. I think we have to be in a relationship with someone or some group that will tell us the truth about ourselves, something much of the time we don't really want to hear. Mm. Uh, and we have to be faithful to those uh, people in our relationships, and we have to be faithful to our relationships. One of the things I value about my current spiritual teacher is that she just lays right into me and <laughs> tells me, Tells, tells it to me as it is, which is very helpful. So, again, Jesus gives the law, and then he says what keeps people trapped. And then he states the transformative initiative. The law is not enough. It is essential, but by itself, it just creates religious people. And religious people are some of the most dangerous people on this planet. Hmm. Um, at best, they are misguided and at worst, they are jerks. The truth is that we can go through the motions about something all our lives and never really become what the motions were meant to make us. Hmm. When you talk about the kind of relationship that we can uh, thrive and grow and sort of be um, not just accept, it's not just acceptance for who we are, but I think also like an imagination for the best of ourselves, right? Holding always that space like, I know there is a, there is a you in there that can be drawn forth. All right. I was, I was held accountable by my amazing husband yesterday. I snapped at one of the kids and he kind of was like, you can do better. And that is, we need that. And I kind of like, don't lecture me. But at the same time, needed to hear that from that person who is my mirror. I know that your heart is better than this. And we can't push our kids away just because we are stuck in the house with them for the last eight months and doing school at a dining room table. But anyway, it's, it's, it is what it is. All I'm saying is that, that ability to see um, the better part of yourself that someone else can sometimes give you that's is why, That's why people like to be with saints. <laughs> I'm serious. I think you just called Josh a saint. In, in that moment sure. when he was doing that, that is exactly what he was. Yeah. People like, that, and, 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 uh, here's <laughs> what I'm saying, is there are people that you like to be around, not because you idealize them, but because how you feel about yourself when you're in their presence. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, I just want to make sure Josh heard that you just called him a saint. Okay. Okay. All right. So I stumbled across this piece by Ernest Hemingway as I read for this week. If there's empty spaces in your heart, oh wow, that text is small. Um, I'll read it and you guys can see the slide a bit later. If there's empty spaces in your heart, they'll make you think it's wrong. Like having empty spaces means you can never be strong. But I've learned that all these spaces means there's room enough to grow. And the people that once filled them were always meant to let go. And all these empty spaces create a strange sort of pull that attract so many people you wouldn't meet if they were full. So if you're made of empty spaces, don't ever think it's wrong because maybe they're just empty until the right person comes along. Mm. Every single one of us has empty spaces. You know that saying, it's a law of physics, nature abhors a vacuum. So quite quickly, 
And because it is uncomfortable to sit in that vacuum, we start to fill the space. Hemingway writes, he ends this by saying, maybe they're just empty until the right person comes along. I want to suggest that we are our right person. And again, as you just said, that, that, that people in our lives who really see us bring forth the best of us, that's who needs to come along. Not, so yourself and surrounding ourselves with the people who can bring forth the thou in us. We are, again, the one person we can't divorce. It's not as if that realization and total acceptance of self comes in one fell swoop. It doesn't. That's why this is so hard. Today's lesson is not magically going to fill the empty spaces. I think of it, though, like tipping the scales, just trying to get it far enough so that the scales tip toward being in a committed, monogamous relationship with you. This, this begins to create incredible things. The quality of our relationships improve, and the right person who may come along does not fill the empty spaces per se, but complements them. What is it that you say, Bill, in your marriage homily? Um, I think it's Khalil Gibran that you quote. And stand together, yet not too near together, for the pillars of the temple stand apart. And the oak tree and the cypress grow, not in each other's shadow. I loved that line. I do too. Yeah. For me, this gets into the second thing that we can never divorce, and that is our place among humanity. Each of us is an individual oak tree or cypress tree. We play a vital part in the whole of human ecology. When I was a little girl, <laughs> I told everyone that when I grew up, I wanted to be an elephant. I didn't know at the time that that was impossible. It was probably a really rough day when someone finally sat me down, most likely my dad, who's very pragmatic, and said, you'll never be an elephant. So I've had to spend my life learning how to become human. My oldest son asked me recently, I've said this in here before, and I actually just wrote my entire comprehensive exam about this question, trying to answer it for him. He said, mommy, what is the human element? I kind of took my breath away for a minute. He's 11, and what a question coming from an 11-year-old. On the one hand, we're human only in contact with what is not human. On the other hand, and I really like the poetics of this thought, I wonder if we're human precisely because we can struggle and reflect and grow up. Maybe we're human because our ability to harness love is our greatest technology. You will only use, lose your eye and your hand if you cannot learn to love who you are and translate that into how you love the world. So another line that I always use in any homily that I do at a wedding is that God gave us marriage to teach us how to love. Mm -hmm. Our culture's got it backwards. Yeah. We think that if we find the right person, then that person will complete us or mm -hmm. something. But actually, and it, and it really is good to be in a relationship where you experience affection, attention, yes. appreciation. I'm not denying that at all. But the primary purpose of any relationship is to help us deepen our spiritual growth in those qualities that we keep mentioning over and over, peace, love, joy, patience, and humility, mm -hmm. those things. And those are the things by which we can measure how we're doing in, in the spiritual life, I yeah. think. So Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. And I think religions, you can change that. Mm -hmm. Religions are designed to help us in this. Religions are designed to, to lead us to an awareness of the sacred. Religion is designed, I don't care if it's Hindu, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, whatever, Judaism, Christianity, to give us the tools and the disciplines so that we can experience the sacred. And the rituals, they're very, very, rituals are incredibly important. Spirituality has to do with becoming transformed people, of living our lives 
with the awareness that we are inside the heart of sacred mystery and that sacred mystery seeks to come alive inside of us. Now, sometimes we focus on one side of the coin or the other, religion or spirituality, but they have to go together. Uh, people who focus only on religion, this is the big sin of fundamentalism, and I believe it's why so many fundamentalists are so angry and sometimes such violent people. On the other hand, you have people who will focus on the, on the spiritual dimension for a variety of reasons. They've been wounded by religions, they found religion to be dishonest or shallow, um, but I think the spirituality-only position is lacking in a foundation. Often this spirituality is just an escape from life as it is. However, my personal opinion is that religion without spirituality is far more dangerous and damaging than spirituality without religion. Uh, so if you have to pick one, <laughs> I'd pick spirituality, but I'd try to put them together mm -hmm. because you need the discipline uh, of, of the religion. Religion without spirituality leads people to being keepers of the law and not seekers of the truth. Uh, I cannot tell you how many times over the years people have expressed dismay or uncomfortable feelings because what they hear in ordinary life transcends the religion that they were taught when they were in junior high. And they don't like the discomfort of moving into a new religion. Uh, if religion by itself is enough, how come religion has been the source of most of the problems in the world? Mm -hmm. All the wars, many wars fought in the name of God. Um, and the, the reason is that it's easy for religion to lose the spirit of the God that may have originally inspired that religion. Holly quoted Meister Eckhart. Only when we begin to see the world, only when we begin to see ourselves and everyone else sees us, the world, and others, have we become both religious and spiritual. Mm -hmm. It's interesting as you talk about sort of spirituality and religion, at their extremes, they actually sound almost exactly alike. In a, an extreme version of religion, we sort of uh, remit personal responsibility, God will take care, God, it's, you know, God's will, God will take care of my life. In an extreme version of um, spirituality, which we might call new age spirituality, the universe will provide, you know. But somewhere in between is that balance of personal responsibility and mystery, the ability to be in awe, but the ability to act, um, to sort of find that messy water <laughs> in between. I think doing this very work that you and I are doing, basing these talks on a document that goes back thousands of years in a tradition, in two traditions really, uh, is a way of staying in touch with that religion. Yeah, the, the, the living word, so to speak, is meant to be revitalized, I think, with every generation. Right. How shall we interpret this now? If it is wise at all, which we're assuming it is, <laughs> How shall it be interpreted right now? Well, and, we pick and choose. Yeah. Well, Jesus kind of did. He did. Yeah. That was his hermeneutic. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. follow him. Yeah. So I wanted to say a little bit more about the human element, as my son called it. It can be overwhelming to find our particular place in the world, especially if we're continually trying to cheat on ourselves by comparing our looks or our abilities or our talents to others by believing the lie that we're too much or too little. I came across this little parable while reading the second book in the Wrinkle in Time series. Uh, we rewatched that movie and I've now, do you like that movie, William? Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I've, we rewatched the movie and I'm now reading the whole five book series. The second one is called A Wind in the Door. The parable says, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. This is a parable. 
quantum entanglement proposes that particles remain connected to, so connected to the actions performed on, sorry, let me start over. Quantum entanglement says that particles that interact impact each other, even when they're separated by great distances, they continue to impact one another. This is also true between the nail and the lost battle. To put it in human entanglement forms, it could be said that everything you touch, you change, and everything that you change, changes you. So what you do matters, whether you're the nail, or the horse, or the rider, or the battle. The world needs us to stay in it not just to stay married, but in love with the world. It will sometimes be a struggle, I think, to love the world. It will lay us flat from time to time. But there is only one U-shaped space in the entire fabric of time, and you're the only one that can fill it. So this um, saying that you have up here is um, the essence of really solid Buddhist teaching. Mm -hmm. This is it. Mm -hmm. Because I think all of Buddhist teaching could probably be contained in the understanding that this is this way because that was that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Independent arising. Mm -hmm. It's caused in... It's called in interdependent in, arising, co-arising. Yeah. 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 So I, I remember when I wore a much younger man's clothes... <laughs> These are your old man's clothes. These are my old man's clothes. <laughs> and I was part of the church in Tennessee that I learned so much from, benefited so much from. Uh, the emphasis in that church at that time was on growth, on numbers. I can remember the slogan. The emphasis in, in the church was on foreign missions, ignoring what was going on in our own racially. Backyard. Yeah, backyard. Yep. And on numbers. And I remember the slogan, a million more in 54. Mm. A million more Southern Baptist in 54. And they said, you try to get people to come join our church. And you tell them it's really easy. There's nothing to it. See, as easy as ABC. Do you, did you ever hear this? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept him as your personal Savior. Confess Jesus publicly. A, B, C, you're in. Did you ever hear that? Yes. I didn't grow up Southern Baptist, but I went to a camp that was heavily influenced by the Southern Baptist. That is the example of religion at its worst. Mm. <laughs> and it's what I got doctrinated into. Um, and even at the time that I was being taught this, I knew it was wrong. I knew there was, there was more. And, and the more that you find in the teachings of Jesus are reflected in this transformative initiative. You've heard, but there's more. There's more to come. And this, to me, is the really hopeful part of religion and spiritual work. So if you change that, what I want to say is that spirituality immerses us in the reality that religion was meant to describe. Spirituality is what takes us beyond religious practice to the purpose of religion, which is the awareness that we live in the heart of sacred mystery and that this mystery seeks to come alive in us. And when this happens, then petty things like denominational differences disappear, sexual orientation issues go away, all of that. The theological distinctions become meaningless. And this is what I meant a few weeks ago when I said we need to move beyond doctrinal religion to this particular understanding. I think that this has a chance to come alive better if we drop the word God. Don't use that label. It's a hard habit to break. But uh, it's, it's what the religion that Jesus seeks to teach us is all about. So, mm. got a comment? Mm-mm, just listening. So the other part of me thinks, though, so yes, I do have a comment. Okay. <laughs> no, but yes, is it, 
can we flip instead of, we can remove the word God. And I do think God has been um, made to be patriarchal, made to be domineering, kept out there. We have a sort of myopic vision or an it vision of God. I also wonder what would happen if we infused everything with God, like just, you know, I don't know if that becomes too magical thinking, but. Well, I was going to if tell. If we see everything as sacred, yeah, I guess. I was, I was going to, to tell a story from the Upanishads, and so I, I, I'm going to abbreviate it, right? Okay. The, the, the sage sends his son away to the, the ashram to be educated, and his son comes home, and the father says, what did you learn? And the son says, I learned everything. I know everything there is to know. And the sage said to himself, this is an arrogant posture that cannot be tolerated. And he said to the son, you must learn to see the essence that is in everything. Mm -hmm. And the son said, how can it be so if I cannot see it? And his father said, there's a pitcher of water. I want you to put salt in it and bring it to me in the morning. And so the son brought the salt and put the salt in the pitcher. And the next morning, the father said, can you see the salt in the water? And the son says, no. He said, well, taste the water from the top. And so the son tasted a little bit. And it, he said, it's salty. He said, taste the water from the bottom. So the son put a dipper into the pitcher and tasted the water from the bottom and said, it's salty. And the sage said, um, that's essence. You can't see it, but it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's in you too. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is what that story teaches is that the essence of what we call God is in us but and between us. And our opportunity is to make that manifest. Yeah. So, next slide. <laughs> we got two more. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next week. Yeah. Have a good one.